This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello podcast listeners, it's Connor from Intelligence Squared. Before we go to this week's episode, I just want to remind you about our very special offer for all our listeners on our new subscription service, Intelligence Squared Plus. Yes, now we are hosting our debates and discussions live and online, and you can join us Just next week, we have Professor BJ Fogg, the founder of the Stanford Behaviour Design Lab, and he'll be speaking to Carl Miller about how our behaviour is being changed amidst the lockdown and the coronavirus pandemic. From spending more time on social media to being estranged from our friends and families, we'll be asking him how is the pandemic changing the way we think and feel and how is it influencing events in the real world? And on Wednesday, just the day after, we'll be joined by the award-winning novelist Salman Rushdie, who many of you will remember was on our podcast just last year. And he'll be speaking to Razia Iqbal, the broadcaster on our new podcast, Touchstones. So if you would like to join us for all these discussions and more debates coming up in the next few weeks, go to intelligencesquared.com and type in the promo code podcast. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at the checkout and ask your questions to the speakers and be a part of the debate as it happens. And on this week's episode, we were joined by Jenny Kleeman, and she joined us to speak about her new book, Sex, Robots, and Vegan Meat, Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex, and Death. It was a really fascinating conversation about where we may be heading in the future, and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Carl Miller, author and research director at Think Tank Demos. Welcome, Jenny. Hello, thank you for having me. So first off then, the, the book kind of almost reads to me like a kind of travel log of sorts. Like, did, did it feel like that when you were kind of beginning to kind of transport the reader from across all the different places that you, you visit in the book? It's funny that you say that. I mean, the, the book, it was always intended to be kind of reportage because my background is actually in documentary filmmaking. I, I learned my craft on television and I was a foreign correspondent for many years on this Channel 4 programme called Unreported World. So whenever I think of stories, I always think of them as journeys and I think of, I think of it as, as scenes. 
And, you know, all the television programmes I've made were always made by current affairs departments who were kind of a little bit sheepish about making, drawing big conclusions. It was almost as if you had to smuggle intellectual points um, in behind some exciting scenes and some exciting journeys. So I've, I've kind of grown up on, on the idea that that's the way you do journalism. But I think it works quite well in this book. And, and as, an, as an exercise, it forces you to think of things as encounters rather than interviews, that you're not just sort of sitting opposite someone with a table in between you and asking them questions. You're asking them to show you stuff so that you can draw your own conclusions from what you see as much as what you hear. Absolutely. And, and I, I thought one of the things I absolutely loved about it was, you know, the, the awful amount of shoe leather which goes into to these stories, which I, I think is kind of far too absent from so many books about technology. Do you think, just before we jump into the themes, did, did you kind of learn different things, more things, when you actually were kind of face to face with the, all the different colourful protagonists which the book features? you always learn more things when you're face to face. And quite often when I want to interview people who are on the other side of the world, they don't understand why we can't just do a phone interview or a Skype interview. But you learn so much more from being in the room with someone, from seeing what their room is like. You learn learn so much more from seeing all the stuff that they haven't chosen to necessarily direct towards your attention. And the shoe leather stuff is something that I've I've learned from from kind of being a, being freelance and not being part of a system where I'm getting kind of press releases I've always had to kind of go out and talk to people and I've learned that you get so much more by actually going to see people even if they're they're baffled or don't really understand why you want to be in their physical presence Hmm. well um let's embark then on this uh, kind of magical uh journey ourselves how would you characterize the, the the destinations on this on this trip I mean it struck me that that really kind of like they they were all in one way or another kind of instances of of how human nature is kind of being recoded or redrawn in different ways in very profound ways by tech yes well i i chose to divide the book up into four sections birth food sex and death as the fundamental pillars of human existence these are the things that we all experience we're all born out of our mother's bodies or a woman's body we all seek out relationships sexual relationships with other human beings we all eat food and generally it's been the flesh of another animal and then we all die and these have all been things that you know whilst we might have tinkered with food I guess all the other things are largely beyond our control but we are now at an age where technology is allowing us to control those pillars of human experiences the technology is allowing us to control those pillars of human experience more than ever and I wanted to look at who's trying to control them and why and what are the unintended consequences of doing that you know what what other problems are created in this attempt to have the perfect birth the perfect food the perfect sex and the perfect death well let's uh, let's begin with uh Maybe where everyone is hoping we will, um, <laughs> sex robots. So, so Jenny, tell us about Abyss Creations. Abyss Creations is a multi-million dollar business that makes hyper-realistic silicone sex dolls. And they cost a lot of money. The, the cheapest models, and the cheapest models are headless torsos without legs. They cost about $5,000, but they will make a hyper-realistic to the touch and to the eye sex doll for about 
$8,000. And these dolls are highly customised. You specify, there, there are 42 different types of nipple to choose between. There are 14 different styles of labia. You can specify where you want each individual freckle to go on the body. And depending on how demanding your specifications are, they can customise something for you. It can cost up to $50,000 or beyond. And this business has been going since the late 90s. It's made the man behind it very wealthy. But his dream has always been to to bring his dolls to life. So over the past few years, he has been investing serious money into putting animatronics and artificial intelligence into these sex dolls. So they become sex robots. And the idea is not only will you be able to customise your perfect partner so it looks exactly how you want it to look, but you can also customise its personality and the AI will remember key facts about you, who your friends are, what food you like to eat, what music you like. And you can programme its mood system. You can programme it what kind of personality this this uh, doll has so that it becomes an artificial companion rather than just a sex doll. There's, there's one particularly arresting scene I thought anyway, where you're kind of surrounded by all these dolls that are kind of hanging on hooks, mm-hmm. you know, kind of almost kind of um, suggesting of a kind of abattoir. Yes. Um, and it, 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 it seemed that you, you kind of like were very deliberately wrapping together the kind of motifs of both dream and nightmare to, w- yes. when trying to describe this place. Yes, and that's a thing that goes through the book. You know, one person's bright future is another person's dystopia. And in many ways, you know, when I went, down onto the shop floor and saw all these headless torsos hanging on on, on a rack, hanging from, from a track in the ceiling. They did look like carcasses in, a, in an abattoir. They did look like pieces of meat. And it was kind of nightmarish. But then also, they were very beautifully made and there was incredible attention to detail and there were remarkable things to behold. So, yes, there was a, attraction and, and revulsion at the same time uh, whilst looking at all of these things. And did did you feel that same kind of strange mix of emotions when you came face to face with Harmony herself? I did. I mean, in in the world of android robotics, there is something called the uncanny valley, which is this. There's it, it's a sort of theory that is when human beings are confronted with something that is almost but not quite human, you feel disgust, you feel kind of horror. And with Harmony, you know, she was very impressive, but. I was encouraged to talk to her and to interview her and my mind went completely blank. I didn't know how to relate to her or how to talk to her. And her eyes were kind of darting between me and Matt McMullen, who runs Abyss Creations. And she looked real, but also she wasn't real. Her, her movement wasn't quite right and the, her speech wasn't quite right, the cadence of her speech. So my mind went completely blank and I also thought, you know, how do you, how do you have a conversation with something where, where there's nothing to empathise with? So it was a very strange experience because I was being watched by her creator who was so proud. And there I was trying to think of things to say to this very, very sexy, pornified lump of silicone with, with some computer inside her. And so what was the kind of real implication that you, that you drew out of this meeting of Harmony and in general kind of like where you saw kind of sex robots and 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 pornified robots to be going you know it it seemed that like kind of in in answering the kind of like the overt kind of needs that people had you kind of saw that in many ways it was kind of kind of circumventing or or kind of ducking kind of other kind of more important questions that human beings need to answer to themselves about relationships and reliance on each other and and giving as well as and receive as well as receiving. Absolutely. I mean, these 
the people who make sex robots, and it's not just abyss creations, there are many people all over the world racing each other to be the first to put a really realistic sex robot on the market. They all claim that they are providing companionship for the lonely, for the bereaved, for people who would otherwise have no chance of having a relationship. But what those people need is human contact. They don't need uh, circuitry and silicone. And, you know, I had this very striking experience which stayed with me throughout the entire book when I was in Las Vegas interviewing this robot inventor and I went back to my hotel room and the hotel was playing really, really loud music to try and get people to come into the casino and gamble. And I was exhausted. I was worried about how I was going to sleep. But when I got up to my hotel room, I saw that the management had left this profusion of different kinds of earplugs in a little tray next to the bed. So it's like, don't worry, you know, we can have the loud music, but you can also have your piece because here's a little piece of technology that will solve the problem. Of course, they could just switch the music off, but they're not going to do that because we want to have our cake and eat it. We want to be able to have everything at once. And we're relying on technology to help us do that. But what technology does is it just creates extra orders of magnitudes of, of problems. And the thing about sex robots for me was there are kind of, I mean, I don't want to say obvious arguments because they're very legitimate arguments about the danger of having uh, such objectified forms of femininity. And they are basically only female dolls. I mean, obviously, there are some male sex robots who are being built, but those are really only for PR purposes, I would say. And the vast majority of the people who buy the sex dolls are men. Even the male sex dolls are born by men. There's a kind of classic argument that it will further objectify women. It will allow men to act out rape fantasies, on, on something that is very hyper-realistic, looks like a woman, sounds like a woman. And that may be true. But for me, the greatest problem was, was an even bigger problem, a broader problem, which is these robots will enable human beings to have relationships where only what they want matters, a partnership where one side of the partnership is the only side that matters. And when we get used to having a partnership where all that matters is what you want and when you want to have sex and your partner always laughs at your jokes and never has periods and is always in the mood and doesn't have any annoying friends. Relationships with other human beings will start to be a little bit more like hard work. And when, when empathy no longer becomes a requirement of a relationship, then we will lose our humanity a little bit. So, uh, you know, even though sex robots sound like the stuff of science fiction, they are definitely coming. And when they do come we have to make sure that we don't lose what makes us human when we interact with them, when we get used to really, really interacting profoundly with very realistic looking robots. And talking of having your cake and eat it, um, next <laughs> stop on our journey, of course, is, uh, is vegan meat. Um, yes. But before we get there, let, let, me, let me just throw a kind of slightly more general question at you first. I always, whenever people raise objections around new technology, there, there is always this argument you hear back, which is, you know, oh, moral panics always exist, exist around new tech. You know, look at yeah. the moral panics, you know, that existed around Dungeons and Dragons or Magic the Gathering cards or, you know, someone will quote Socrates being curmudgeonly around the, you know, advance of writing. How, how do you kind of respond? I, I'm, I'm sure you must have confronted arguments like that a lot when, when when writing yes. this and, and in general covering this kind of technology how, how do you kind of respond to that how, how do you how do you think through kind of the kinds of technology which we need to be raising alarm and, and awareness about and kinds of technology which we should be embracing I think we need to be skeptical about all technology and I think that's a that's one of the great virtues of of 
looking at all of this from my background was that I'm not a tech journalist. So I'm asking very basic questions and I'm sceptical in a way that maybe a tech journalist wouldn't be. And I'm kind of not dazzled by things in the same way. And I don't have ongoing relationships with the people making this tech. I'm definitely not a Luddite. I really see the point of technology. I think we need to be able to ask questions all the time from the beginning about it. But the first question we should ask is, do we really need this? And in the case of sex robots, lab-grown meat, artificial wombs, artificial wombs, maybe there's more of a question mark over it, but, and euthanasia machines. I would say the argument is that we don't need any of these things. They are being provided to us as a way of stopping us from confronting things that we could do if we were prepared to do this sort of intellectual work of solving problems. They're stopping us from, from reforming ourselves as human beings. So I think there is definitely, technology is massively useful. You know, here we are in lockdown. 10 years ago, lockdown wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't had Zoom and Netflix and all the different ways of remote working that we have now. You know, in many ways, we're all alive because of technology at the moment. But you need to ask all the time, what are we being sold? Is it snake oil? Is it something that's strictly necessary? And if it's not strictly necessary, what are going to be the unintended consequences of of using this technology? And is it worth it? Well, the next section of the book begins in with with kind of with this kind of horridly eloquent description from you of, of the the horrors of the meat industry as it currently stands let, let, let's begin there and because because you, you, you know you kind of recognize at the very beginning that the kind of status quo isn't actually in many cases a particularly nice place either yes absolutely I look at intensive animal agriculture and all the different reasons why it's completely indefensible without looking at the animal rights argument. And there are many, many reasons. It's a massive contributor to climate change. It's a massive contributor to antibiotic resistance. It causes water pollution. It uses land in an absurdly inefficient way. Eating meat makes us ill, causes cancer, causes heart disease. Um, And we know that eating meat relies on the death of animals and that most animals live really horrible lives in order to become our meat. But that isn't enough for carnivores like me, I'm somebody who eats meat, to stop eating meat. We, we shut our eyes when we open our mouth, but the, the world is becoming much more overpopulated. And if we continue eating meat at the rate that we're doing, the, you know, we are going to cause our own extinction, basically. Something has to give. And so there are kind of two directions that we can go in. One is that we eat less meat. And the other is that we eat the same amount of meat, but we produce it in a different way, which is what these Silicon Valley giants say they are able to do, which is growing meat in laboratories, taking biopsies of animals, culturing culturing them and growing them into meat that we can eat. And this is not, you might think of, be thinking about beyond burgers and impossible burgers here. That's not what I'm talking about. Those are um, plant-based meats. Those are meats where there's a kind of plants that have been tinkered with in a very clever way to turn them into very convincing meat substitutes. This is actual meat, but instead of being grown on the body of an animal, it's been grown in a lab. And I got to go to a Silicon Valley startup and eat a chicken nugget from a chicken named Ian who is still alive and flapping his wings, I believe, even now. Or or so they told me. Yeah, I got to taste it all for myself. (laughs) And you you seem to have kind of stumbled on this kind of vegan network of of funders and founders when you began to report on the kind of clean meat industry. 
Yes, that was one of the most interesting things about it. And that's the reason why clean meat is, in the title is vegan meat, is the, the clean meat, which is what they were calling lab-grown meat at the time of my reporting, um, I think they're now calling it cultivated meat, is, uh, is in, the industry is entirely run by and funded by vegans. And they keep it very quiet because it's based on a premise it's based on the premise that the animal rights argument, that the ethical veganism argument has failed, that people haven't stopped eating meat, even though they know that it's produced in a horrible way. So instead, we need to be telling people it's healthier and better for the environment to not eat meat grown in an animal. And you shouldn't mention veganism because it puts people off. People feel like there's an attitude of, of moral rectitude tied to the idea of being a vegan. So the, the future all these people are fighting for is a future where the entire meat industry is run by and controlled by vegans. But the vegans themselves keep it very quiet. So I met some remarkable people. I met this this guy, Bruce Friedrich of the Good Food Institute, who's dedicated his life to stopping animal agriculture, who's so eloquent and so inspiring and interesting. But he used to be head of vegan campaigns at Peter, and he, he doesn't really mention that until I bring it up. And then when I probe into who all the funders are who are backing these companies, they're all vegans too, but that's all kept quite quiet. So that was part of the story as well. Why, why is everyone keeping quiet about this veganism? And, and is the future of, of meat really going to be vegan? Did that kind of teach you something more general about the nature of the people that actually sit behind each of these bodies of technology in, in these different areas? Because it, it, it strikes me that they are as important as the technology itself. You know, often these mm. kind of tight bundles of, of highly skilled, e- extremely well-capitalised people who, who are really driving each of these bleeding edges forwards in their different ways. Mm, absolutely. I mean, one, it actually has led me to do some further reporting, some things that I've been looking at since writing the book, particularly when you're looking at funding and the philanthropists who fund the non-profits that have been promoting, like Bruce Friedrich, his organisation, that it made me look at how the world is being sort of quietly shaped by people who are spending their money, giving their money away according to their own uh, ethical positions that makes them you know, far more powerful than any government and that they're, behind, they're sort of quietly driving certain areas of technology and certain kind of lobby groups and having wielding an enormous amount of power that is largely unseen and it requires a, quite a bit of effort to kind of join the dots, I would say, on all of that. Well, that, that was absolutely actually the next theme that I wanted to raise with you, which was how much you thought all of this is, is kind of happening in the shadows. Because uh, one kind of gets the impression kind of as, as, as you read your book that, you know, that, that a lot of what we can all see, you know, it seems something of a sideshow to to many of the people actually working on this technology so you know we're all obsessed by you know public debate and you know the courts and politics but actually it's it's small clusters of people in labs and and silicon valley venture capitalists and 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 you know highly dispersed teams across the world working on harmonies coding these seem to be really the people that often actually are making the decisions about what direction humanity will end up actually traveling in Yes, I think that's true. And and they are kind of driving things forward very quietly and very relentlessly. And they're influenced by ethics, of course, but generally also by market forces, which are kind of more powerful than any government at the moment, certainly. And when, when you talk about, you know, we're influenced by what we can see, there is also this aspect that I, I discovered from doing the reporting of the book of the, the performances that the people who create this technology are prepared to put on 
to, to show the public what they're doing. And they are performances. And even when you ask questions that aren't really very welcome or aren't the questions that they want, they all, they all kind of shut down and, and get very cross because they want you to see a particular kind of display of what they're doing and not think about, you know, the unintended consequences of all of this or what could go wrong in, in all of this. I guess, I guess that's kind of obvious. Any, any business would want to control their image in that way. But the, the performances that they put on are very distracting. So if you look at the way that sex robots are reported on, for example, journalists really uncritically report on it, all lab-grown meat. If you look at any other coverage of it, people are dazzled by the idea of it and they don't want to puncture the, the idea by injecting a bit of reality into it and saying, hmm, maybe this isn't ready for human consumption. Maybe this robot isn't quite as good as the inventor said it was. Because there are stories that we like to tell ourselves and the people behind these technologies play on that quite a lot by giving us that narrative and assuming that that nobody's going to probe too deeply into it and make it kind of disintegrate as a as a journalist not necessarily specialized in tech what, what was your experience of hype you know one of these what you know inescapable from so much technology reporting and um, did you did you have to kind of cut through a lot of it when you're reporting each of these areas I did, but I'm quite good at it because I'm not afraid of looking stupid. I, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great... I, I've discovered now that a lot that you can have a lot of power and strength as a journalist if you're prepared to ask very basic questions. And also, I do all of my own transcription, which I have to say is a living hell and takes ages and is really dull. But what it means is I'm intimately familiar with every word my interviewees have said and when you look at the language people use you can really cut through and see what they're confident talking about and what they're not so I was constantly confronted with hype and I really enjoy kind of piercing it and asking those basic questions and you very quickly get a feel for who is genuine and authentic who is really enjoying pulling the wool over your eyes and gets very cross when you ask very simple questions and who is genuinely engaged in in the mission that they say that they are into i mean and and in the meat meat section it's a really good example of that because i spoke to mark post who's the man who created the first lab grown hamburger which i'm sure if anyone listening now if they think of lab grown meat they will imagine this this burger in a petri dish that became this uh, big um you know made the news um a few years ago and it was his burger he is very clearly not driven by anything other than total excitement about what he's doing and, and the idea that it might change the world. And I, I think his, his heart is in the right place. So, you know, I could ask him anything. But it's the people who, who... It's people where the shutters come down and where they don't want you piercing the hype, that, that where it becomes really interesting and you think, hmm, why don't you like this? That's, that's, I really love that part of the job, I have to say. Well, that was Sex Robots and Vegan Meat. Now it's time for a quick break. And when we're back, we'll discuss perhaps those even more elemental aspects of humankind, birth and death. So everyone, welcome back. Um, before the break, we were awash with the stories of a vegan meat and sex robots. Now let's turn to birth. Jenny, surely this isn't a place where technology is, is also beginning to recode uh, the human experience. I think it is, I have to say. It is, Carl. Although the, the motivation for this is slightly different. The motivation for, for this, and the birth section is about artificial wombs. What if you could have a baby without anyone being pregnant? gestating a baby outside the human body which is kind of it's referred to as ectogenesis it's a uh, a word coined by jbs haldane which sounds very science fiction but we are we are creeping closer to it uh, every year and that's because of attempts to save ever more premature babies 
And in 2017, some researchers at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia showed that they had managed to gestate lamb fetuses in bags for several weeks. And when they opened the bags, the lambs inside were no different from lambs that had gestated inside the uteruses of, of pregnant ewes. And these researchers, they work with super premature babies and all they're trying to do is improve outcomes for premature babies. Because at the moment, if you have a baby too soon, the baby's put in an incubator. The incubator treats the baby as if it's a newborn, not a fetus. So it supports the baby with breathing, but it doesn't allow the process of gestation to continue. Whereas their invention, the bio bag, allows the baby to carry on gestating. And the bio bag is a kind of Ziploc bag, a big plastic bag filled with man-made amniotic fluid. And there's a portal into it through which some tubes go that are put into the lamb's umbilical cord and that oxygenates the blood, removes uh, carbon dioxide and acts as a sort of artificial placenta. So this was enormous news when it came out in 2017 because it, it came with some incredible pictures of these lambs that look very much like fetuses. And then a few weeks later, there they are and they've grown wool all over themselves and they're they're moving around and they're definitely gestating but they are not inside any animal but it turns out that human beings have been trying to do this for a long time to improve outcomes for premature babies and it must be said that at this stage it's not possible to replace pregnancy because whilst you can keep fetus well not fetuses you can keep embryo embryos after conception up for up to two weeks there is a kind of ethical limit that you're supposed to destroy embryos after two weeks but at some point, it will be scientifically possible to grow embryos for longer. And the points between saving a very premature baby and growing an embryo will one day meet one day in the very distant future. Well, not very within a few generations. So these artificial wounds, the idea of completely replacing pregnancy is a lot further, further off than the inventions, the other inventions in my book. But even partially replacing pregnancy comes with enormous ramifications and of all of the sections of my book, this was the most difficult to write. And this was the one where it was hardest to find interviewees. It was easier to find someone prepared to say on the record that they wanted to have sex with a robot than people who would say they would like to gestate a baby in a bag. So it was really challenging, but also terrifying, the kind of implications of what this means for women. The rights of women are based so much on on our autonomy over our bodies, if your right to choose whether or not to be pregnant is the right to choose what happens to your body, what if it doesn't happen to your body? What if you could say, okay, I don't want to have this baby, and the state could say, all right, well, transfer it into a bio bag and we'll grow it there. Why should women have the right to say that their baby is going to die just because they don't want to gestate it? I mean, that was just one of many, many different implications of this technology. And so, yes, artificial wounds for me were the most terrifying. Is is that terrifying in the sense in the sense that it kind of seemed to kind of awaken a series of kind of Gordian knot philosophical problems which you, you can't see humanity solving by the time the technology is ready? Kind of where was the what's the kind of crux of the fear? It exposed for me the the gulf between the perfect world in which this technology is being developed and the real world and the fact that we need to sort things out pretty quickly before this technology arrives, because it could be put to use for some very nefarious ends. For example, if you think that this technology is being developed to save the most vulnerable babies on Earth, super premature babies, few people could argue with that. Few people would say, no, I don't want these babies to die. But, you know, in certain 
states uh, in certain parts of America, in certain parts of the UK and in Europe, there are people who make arguments saying if we're going to rescue vulnerable babies who are born prematurely, we should rescue vulnerable babies who are being gestated inside the wombs of women who are taking drugs or behaving inappropriately. Maybe they're smoking. Maybe they're not very bright. Maybe there are all sorts of reasons why we can't trust them to be pregnant. And when a, a technology like this can exist and, and they'll be able to, they're hoping that they'll be able to start trials with human babies sometime this year. Um, you don't need a full replacement for pregnancy for that. You could just have this, this bio bag and you could deem certain women as being not responsible enough to carry on with their pregnancy. And that really, really terrifies me. What kind of proportion or, or kind of um, kind of number of people, not, not just here in birth, but, but across all the different areas of tech that you looked at, working at the bleeding edge of, of one particular kind of coalface or another, what proportion of do, do you think were kind of worried that the kind of gushing onrush of technology was outpacing all those squishy human regulations and laws and moral codes and, and philosophies which were needed to control the tech that they were making? None of them did. I mean, none of them saw their tech as solving fundamental human problems and making life better for people, making life better for everybody. And they kind of, quite often when I brought up the problems with them, they were quite irritated because they were saying, you know, can't you see we're going to be providing companionship for the lonely. We're going to be saving the planet. We're going to be saving really premature babies. We're going to be, you know, freeing old people from the fear of death. You know, all these other considerations kind of got in the way very much. And that was worrying. Also, all of the people who are behind all of these inventions, apart from one member of one of the teams working on artificial wombs, they were all men. (laughs) All of them. Mm. So in a way, these are all products of a kind of particularly male way of controlling birth through sex and death or a male idea of how we should be approaching these questions, which again brings up very interesting. You know, it's interesting when you look at artificial wombs, they have the potential to liberate women and make women equal to men in that men and women could both just supply the gametes and then the gestation could happen externally. It means women won't have, their careers won't have to suffer from being pregnant. They won't face the same kind of discrimination. It's an incredible source of equality in many ways. But actually for me, I mean, the big thing from writing that section was realising that the source of so many, so much of our weakness as women, the fact that we are the ones that bear the children and the basis of, 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 of the inequality between the sexes is also the source of an amazing power that women have that men unequivocally don't have. And actually, if we give that power up, it's more likely to be beneficial to men than for women, because men will, will there will be, even in the most misogynistic societies, women are valued for their ability to produce children. So it was a giant can of worms for me. Mm. Uh, and really interesting way of, of kind of putting into perspective how the double-edged sword of reproductive power, what it is for women, it, it's, it's a source of weakness and a source of power. Do you, do you think that's a kind of, a kind of broad, should be a broader kind of cause for concern and pause and reflection and action really across society, this kind of glaring moral certainty that a lot of the people that build these kinds of technologies have and often maybe an inability to see that the, 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 as well as kind of resolving some questions, their technology is actually opening up so many more, which it cannot Yes, answer. absolutely. And part of that comes from the way that we, that we report on tech, which is that we think of 
progress as, uh, no, we, we think of technology as progress, that it must be good. And we, we're not, we don't immediately ask those critical questions. But when we think about social issues, we're always looking for the problems there, if you see what I mean. So it's almost like when we're looking at human things, we're looking, we're looking to problematise them. But when we're looking at inventions and pieces of equipment, we're dazzled by the potential there. And maybe we need a bit of balance in those two things and, and be more willing to criticise technology and more open to look at the, the, the possibilities of solving human problems, you know, by changing our behaviour, rather than constantly looking at what's, what's wrong with kind of moral change or legislation or, or, or the rest of it. Many of these people, not not all of them, I thought, but but many of them also did seem to be kind of touched by the cult of the founder. You know, yes. this, this this particularly <laughs> Silicon Valley obsession with the 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 originator of the idea, the founder of the company. You know, and and a lot of them spoke in this kind of really kind of like millennial kind of like kind of religious kind of language yes. um, about about the kind of salvation that their each of their different products were bringing. Yes, absolutely. There was very much a sense of that and, and a kind of blind faith as well, which again goes back to what we've been talking about. This inability to question things would be, you know, the, the inability to question things and the idea that it would be heretical to ask, you know, is this really what we want to do? Is this achieving what we want to achieve? Is this really silly over-engineering when we could just be eating less meat, for example? Or, um, you know, does the world need this? Or is this going to have potentially massive consequences that we didn't intend? And yes, there was very much a kind of a cult of the inventor. Uh, you don't want to question the, the the visionary genius behind all of it. And all all of those visionary geniuses behind all of these pieces of technology were people with massive egos who were really motivated by a quest for validation and fame. And, you know, Steve Jobs and Elon Musk came mm. up quite a lot in, in my discussions with all of these people. They kind of, these people want to go, go down in history as people who've, uh, you know, radically disrupted the world with their technology even though I think it might be the disruptions might be might be far different from from what they intend. Uh, absolutely, I mean, it, it, your, I think your book kind of reflected this very kind of peculiar condition of Silicon Valley that it seems impossible to justify the existence of a company simply through the pursuit of profit. Yes. I mean, no, no one could ever really say no. The reason I'm doing this, creating this technology, is because I think it will be popular or make me money. Yes. Um, there have it to, to be. always be these, yeah, ulterior. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to save the world. I'm going to connect people. <laughs> I'm going to bring people together. Yes, it's really funny. And you think the venture capitalists, probably they, you know, they really do care about making money. So they, you know, that has to be part of it. But it has to be, I'm going to make everybody rich at the same time as saving the world. Or, uh, you know, I'm going to bring companionship to the lonely uh, at the same time as making a lot of money for people. Yes, it's interesting that I hadn't really thought about it that way, that way but it's very true. You can't just say this is a really attractive business proposition i guess you're kind of proving that you're thinking about marketing already from the beginning if you've already thought about the positive message about how this is going to save humanity from the start and if you're thinking about marketing from the beginning you're probably thinking about sales from the beginning and therefore your bottom line from the beginning absolutely um, but perhaps that's, that's just my cynicism with uh, silicon valley creeping in there last big question for you in in many ways do, do you think these kind of different technologies almost kind of I don't, they almost kind of strike me as being like Peter Pan technologies in the sense that they represent 
progression without humanity really growing up that they kind of uh, are in different ways allowing us to kind of duck the difficult choices and questions which we face as humans was 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 that your sense that you know that, that in many ways they actually don't represent a kind of moral or relational kind of or political progression of humanity absolutely even when it, that we become more powerful obviously as technology becomes more powerful around us absolutely i mean the these all of these technologies, all of these innovations are supposed to be solutions to big human problems. But in fact, they're not solutions. They are circumventions. They are a way of getting around the problem without solving it. And we already have within our power the means to solve it. It just requires more effort. It requires some real intellectual thought. I mean, if you look at, you know, if you look at the future of death, if we could find a way to frame legislation so that people can have the right to die without weak and vulnerable people being exploited, then that you wouldn't need fancy death machines that provide you with the perfect <laughs> death. Or, you know, lab-grown meat is so obvious. It's like, if we would just eat less meat, you wouldn't need all this overshoot engineering. And actually, though, what, what these innovations represent is the commercial opportunity of the easy fix, of somebody saying to you, we can give you what you want without sacrifice. And that is how to part people from their money is to say, you can carry on as normal. You might have these ethical niggles. You might have these worries. You might find certain aspects of existence difficult. We're going to make it easy for you. Just buy this. And actually, that's never going to be the answer. We need to do kind of proper work in order in order to progress. We need to reform ourselves. And, and you know, progress doesn't come from bits of kit and bits of technology. It comes from social change. And and what would you say is the is the way forwards here? I, I'm sure that many people listening to this are probably going to leave quite alarmed, really, that the, the kind of you know about all these false horizons, you know, that and 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 false salvations that that that, that are out there. Kind of how how might people individually or collectively, politically or socially, kind of do something to try and ensure that that, that tech kind of shapes us and is shaped in ways which are humane? These products are going to exist. It is up to us whether or not we choose to buy them. You have to ask yourself all the time, do I actually need this thing that I'm being sold? Do I need a meditation app? I could just meditate, for example. You know, I was really interested by the rise of, in America, you can buy uh, the hormone melatonin in capsules over the counter to help you sleep because, you know, we're all going through this sleep crisis at the moment because we're all obsessed with tech and we can't put our iPhones down and that's interfering with our sleep. You could just put your iPhone away and go to sleep instead of <laughs> taking pills in order to do it. And this is the point. It's the same thing as, as, as a hotel providing you with earplugs when it's pumping music really loudly outside your room. You know, it's all a little bit ridiculous. So the question is, do we really need this technology? Do we already have all the answers this, that this technology is, is promising to provide within our hands? As in, just put your phone down, just turn the music off, just eat less meat. Do we actually need all of this? And actually, for me, I found it quite empowering to realise that, 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 you know, all the things that these entrepreneurs are promising us, we do already have in our hands if, if we choose to enact them. It's just we it's going to be harder work than just buying for something. But it's going to be harder work than just paying for something, paying for an off the shelf solution that isn't really a solution. So I'd say you need to look at tech sceptically and, and ask yourself whether or not you really need the next shiny new thing or could you just do it anyway? I mean, that's another thing that's, that's come to me through lockdown is there are so many things that we, we think we need that we don't need. And our capacity to change our behaviour radically. If a year ago 
you could have said everybody is is going to you know en masse stay at home and change the way they live you wouldn't have believed it possible but human beings are really adaptable and you know you can just go for a run if you need exercise you can just meditate you don't need fancy gadgets you can have them if you choose them but don't choose them uncritically go into it with open eyes i would say well, it's a, it's a wonderful book, Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex and Death. This has been Jenny Kleeman, its author. Jenny, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – and we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.